Hi there. This is the story of this tiny island off the northwest shore of Europe that's had such an incredible impact on the world to this day. You know, whether it's in democracy and law like the Magna Carta and the Bill of Rights, or it's inventions like steam power, small smallpox vaccines, uh, the World Wide Web, whether it's philosophy and ideas, popular music, film stars, sons and daughters who went elsewhere, whether it's the Pilgrim Fathers or Charlie Chaplin, sport with cricket and football and rugby, and not least the language from the King James Bible to Harry Potter and to the Bard of Stratford, William Shakespeare. This tiny island has influenced far beyond its size. It was Shakespeare who described Britain as this sceptre isle, this fortress built by nature itself, this precious stone set in the silver sea. But this sceptre isle wasn't always the star of the show once. It was just the island on the edge of the world. And once upon a time, when our story begins, it wasn't an island at all. In fact, 200,000 years ago, at the beginning, at the end of the last ice age, Britain was very much part of the European mainland. Not only was Britain connected to modern day France uh, beyond the White Cliffs of Dover, but the whole of what is now the North Sea was this giant plain connecting Britain to the rest of Europe. It's an area which has subsequently been called Doggerland. And across this plain, Neanderthal hunter-gatherers made their way west from Europe to Britain and beyond to Ireland. Around 10,000 years ago, the melting glaciers retreating north led to a rising sea levels and Doggerland disappeared under the waves of the North Sea. And the only sign it's ever existed is, a, is an upland area on the old plain that sailors now know as Dogger Bank. And it gives its name to one of the zones on the daily shipping forecast. Those of you who listen to it on Radio 4, uh, you know, fourth time Dogger. And yet, thousands of years later, those trawler men who listen to those uh, shipping forecasts still bring up fossiled trees from the forests of Doggerland in their nets and bones from the animals that live there and flint arrowheads from those hunters who hunted there. And finally, with the rising sea levels, there was an earthquake that split the chalk, um, the chalk, the chalk escarpment and the sea rushed in to this broken chalk chasm that we now call the English Channel. For the first time in its history, Britain was cut off from the rest of the European continent by the sea and became this sceptre isle. And the hunter-gatherers suddenly found themselves cut off too. Britain, whether they liked it or not, was their new home. And who were these first Britons? Well, we can get a pretty good idea at the Natural History Museum in London. In 1903, some human bones were discovered in Goth's cave in Cheddar Gorge, Somerset. And subsequent carbon dating has identified those as them as a remains of a man who died about 10,000 years ago, around the time that Britain was cut off from mainland Europe. In fact, subsequent DNA assessments show that Cheddar Man, as he's now called, was dark-skinned, dark-haired and had blue eyes. He shared similar DNA to other bones discovered amongst other Mesolithic hunter-gatherers across Western Europe. Um, and that's interesting because future immigrants obviously had some of the, that blood in them. And so something like 10% of British pre-1945 British uh, families that lived here pre-1945 
uh, something like 10% of their DNA is from this group. Around 4000 BC, about 6000 years ago, a new group of settlers landed upon the shores. Neolithic farmers originating from, well originally from modern day Turkey, but they travelled obviously westwards and arrived through uh, Western Europe, France, what's now France and uh, Spain. And they, uh, they, they brought and swiftly uh, displaced those Mesolithic hunters. Archaeological research has shown that these New Britons looked very different to the previous inhabitants. Olive brown skin, dark hair, brown eyes, and um, they were anything between 5 foot 3 and 5 foot 11 in height, with an average lifespan of around 30 years. Amazing what archaeology and DNA and carbon dating can give you, isn't it? As the population grew past 200,000, there were, again, archaeological signs of growing signs of conflict with bodies displaying arrow wounds. And alongside the need to organise for warfare, there was also need for organisation on another scale. Because these are the people who built Stonehenge, as we now know it, around 2000 BC, about 4000 years ago. Yet, just as they were celebrating this climax of this major organisational and architectural achievement that is Stonehenge, newer people washed up on the shores from the Iberian Peninsula, which is modern day Spain and Portugal. These people differed from the locals. Instead of olive brown skin, they had pale skin. Instead of brown eyes, they had blue eyes. And where the Neolithic inhabitants had dark hair, many of these new arrivals were blonde. And not like the builders of Stonehenge, they were buried with their goods. Uh, spliced bell-shaped pottery beakers. And hence that's given them their collective name, the Beaker People. Evidence suggests that within the less than 200 years they'd overwhelmed the indigenous people of Britain. We're not sure if they wiped them out or whether they intermarried with them. Some scientists even think they brought a disease with them, which, to which they were immune, but which was devastating to the local Neolithics. Yet results that British settlers and seafarers later replicated hundreds of years later in North America and Australasia and the Pacific regions. Um, many of these people were not just buried with their beakers, but they were buried with copper daggers too. And th these incomers combined the use of copper and uh, Cornish mined tin to produce a new alloy, which gave the period its better known name, the Bronze Age. By 1000 BC, bronze had given way to a new metal, iron. And it was iron that changed agriculture and warfare in Britain. As agriculture became more sophisticated and war became more deadly, so the need to work together and become organised became an imperative. Hill forts were constructed across the country, many of which are still there today, like Oswestry Hill Fort, like Maiden Castle in Dorset. And there were sculptures like the White Horse of Uffington, uh, which is dated to a thousand years before Christ was born. Now, you know, as I say, hill forts and artwork like the White Horse scraped into that chalk hillside required organisation. And slowly, society started to stratify with leaders and worker ants, basically. These British, these are the British that many of us now refer to as Celts. There's evidence of trade between this New Britain, Iron Age Britain, and Northwest Europe, and Iberia, Spain and Portugal, and even the Mediterranean. And the influences from Europe 
shaped these island people, in particular what we now call Celtic art. It was coming the other way. This wasn't, Celtic art was not, as much as we like to see this as, as like British or Welsh indigenous Celtic art, uh, like many other stories in British history, Britain has been influenced by the outside and it looks like the Celtic, the Celts in, in France were influencing this art form. Take for instance the exquisite ornamental shield found in the Thames near Battersea. Housed at the British Museum, the shield which is now called the Battersea Shield, not only has all those swirling curves depicting birds that we associate with the ancient British Celtic art, but it was also studded with red glass, which comes from Italy. So there we were, these ancient Britons, Iron Age Britons, 2,500 years ago, trading with Italy. And indeed, it's from sort of that period that a, a Greek merchant and adventurer from modern-day Marseille in southern France, a man called uh, Pythias, recorded two voyages to Britain. In fact, he circumnavigated the island and gave it a name, Britannia. And the Romans later adopted that name and adapted it slightly to Britannia. We now call it Britain. So growing trade, especially with the inhabitants of Northwest Europe, resulted in some of those people actually choosing to seek opportunities into Britain. So we had another group of, in another group of immigrants arriving in Britain um, around 100 BC. They were from the area of Northwest France, modern day Belgium, that area. And most of these people, they were called the Belgi or the Belgi. Um, evidence seems that they didn't come in great numbers. They seem to establish themselves sort of at the top of the food chain and establish kingdoms. So what we have was Britain, British kingdoms with Belgic overlords and Celtic warriors underneath. Close trade and family ties with the Belgic communities in northwestern Europe, artistic ties with the Celtic communities in, in Gaul, modern day France, trading and known to the growing civilizations in the Mediterranean all meant one thing. In the last century BC, the island, which now boasted a population of nearly 2 million, by the way, might no longer be connected to Europe through Doggerland, but it was no longer cut off from the rest of the world. And whilst this was certainly the island on the edge of the world, it was on the metaphorical radar of a power-hungry empire that was in the process of consuming Gaul and the Belgic tribes, Rome. Empire builders are always on the lookout for wealthy prizes, as the British were to prove later in history when they built their empire. But at the moment, they were on the receiving end. And not for the last time. Britain, especially the southern lowlands, were a rich agricultural prize. Just ask the Vikings, just ask William the Conqueror. They appealed. And unlike Gaul, France, Britannia did have a moat to protect itself. And it always would. Just ask King Philip of Spain with his armada, or Napoleon, or Hitler. And that might have been enough to dissuade an aggressive power. But not when you were a wealthy prize. And not when you provided men to support the Veneti tribe in modern-day Brittany in an uprising against Roman rule. And not if you provided refuge to Rome's enemies fleeing the invasion in Gaul. And not if you were the centre of the Druid religion that was inspiring the Gauls to rebel against their new Roman masters. And especially not if the Roman general who just conquered Gaul went by the name of Julius Caesar. 
Gaius Julius Caesar was about 50 years of age. He was a Roman aristocrat, a politician, a soldier. He just spent the last eight years conquering Gaul. He did have a score to settle with the island people. Moreover, his political rival back in Rome, a man called Crassus, was lining up a military campaign against the mighty Parthian Empire that covered most of modern-day Iran and Iraq. You know, a victory like that would cost an ambitious politician like Caesar dearly if Crassus pulled a victory off like that. So how do you counter Crassus and his bid for political power in Rome? I mean, Gaul was, was old news. It had taken ages. Um, it had nearly ended in disaster. And quite frankly, any political capital that Caesar had got out of Gaul, he, he'd long banked. But what if you could extend Roman power to the very edge of the world? And there, across a narrow piece of water, was the island on the edge of the world. And if political capital and settling some scores with the interfering Brits and their Druids wasn't enough, he was also aware that the island was wealthy. You know, it mined both tin in modern-day Cornwall, there was gold in modern-day Wales. And so in what we would now call August 55 BC, he set out from near the modern port of uh, modern-day Boulogne in northern France for the short crossing across the English Channel to uh, Britannia. And as daylight rose, his fleet of 80 ships carrying about 10,000 men from the 7th and 10th legions sighted the White Cliffs of Dover. And there on the clifftops were ranged hundreds, no, thousands of British warriors, their long hair billowing in the wind, their upper bodies bare, shaved and dyed blue with woad. Chariots interspersed amongst them. I mean, the sight must have weakened even the most hardened Roman legionnaires. You know, if the Gauls had been hard work, this lot looked really hard work. Caesar's original intention was to land by the White Cliffs of Dover, but with those opponents armed with spears, stones and goodness knows what else, uh, what other missiles could be thrown from height down onto them, that was just suicide. So he ordered his fleet north and the British followed him along the coast. Near the present-day port of Deal in Kent, he turned towards the shore. And as they approached the beach, the British swept down, the Britons swept down to meet them. The legionnaires took one look at this hold and they stayed exactly where they were, safely on the boats. Thank you very much, Caesar. And then the annals tell us that uh, the eagle bearer of the 10th legion jumped into the water, probably about waist height, and started to wade ashore. With the 10th, the 10th Legion, their, their eagle bearer, their standard bearer had jumped in and was going into battle and they felt duty bound to follow him. And as they saw the 10th Legion jumping into the water, the 7th took their lead and they jumped in too. In a vicious hand-to-hand -hand fight in the surf, Caesar's men were able to gain a foothold on the shore of Britain. The Britons, battered, bloody, weary, retired inland to fight another day. Caesar waited for his cavalry reinforcements. He needed them to really take out the chariots. And four days later, they were sighted uh, on the channel coming towards them when suddenly a channel storm blew up, preventing them from landing. In fact, they turned around and they went back to the safety of their ports in France to avoid the storm. And there they stayed. No way were they going to this strange island on the edge of the world to fight long-haired, bare-chested, blue-tattooed, probably drunk, Brits who were careering around a battlefield in chariots. And so Caesar, with no reinforcements, but with a heck of a PR stunt of landing in Britannia and defeating the locals, packed up 
and headed back across the channel to join his uh, his cavalry in, in in Gaul. He must have looked at the the white cliffs of Dover receding into the distance and muttered, a bit like General MacArthur, you know, "I shall return." And a year later, he did. Fifty four BC, he was back. Uh, the British uh, the British knew from their friends in Gaul uh, had already told them trouble was brewing. That he was gathering an army. And the British scouts were waiting on the clifftops once more, waiting to see the Romans arrive. And over the horizon came a mighty fleet, 800 ships carrying five legions of men, 30,000 men and 2,000 cavalry. They were there this time. Oh, and of course, Julius Caesar himself was there too. The leader of the preeminent tribe in southern Britain, Catavalonus of the Catavalone tribe, we were centred around sort of Hertfordshire, Bedfordshire, Buckinghamshire, that sort of area, northern home counties, uh, attempted, he attempted to organise a united front of the tribes of southern Britain. And it was Catavalonus who had given Caesar his bloody nose just a year before. But as you might be aware, if you follow any of the news and politics generally here in the 21st century, politics and power funny businesses. The problem with being the rising power who tries to coordinate everyone else is that other people sometimes feel they're the losers. And some of the tribes were looking at uh, Cassavalonis and thinking, well, do you know, maybe if Caesar clipped his wings, that might suit us quite nicely. So that united front was being constructed wasn't quite as solid as it had appeared a year beforehand. Cassivalaunus decided that this year he would not fight them on the beaches, but draw the Romans inland, stretching their supply trains and weakening them in hit-and-run tactics. And of course he had the chariots to do that with. So Caesar landed unopposed in Kent, which was a heck of a lot easier than it had been a year before. And his cavalry landed this year, which was also a step forward, wasn't it? And then would you believe another channel storm hit his fleet? And for the next 10 precious days, Rather than engaging with the, the woe that died at British warriors, the finest soldiers in the Roman Empire were forced to salvage and repair as many ships as they possibly could. After all, Caesar might need them to get a, have a quick getaway. But it wasn't all bad news. The Catavalonized neighbours uh, and rivals, the, the Trinovantes, who are based in modern-day Essex with their, uh, with their capital at Colchester, modern-day Colchester, joined forces with Caesar. The woad blue wall was starting to crack. Caesar marched inland across the River Thames at Brentford, uh, west of modern, or the west, west of modern-day Greater London. And he marched on the Catavalonine capital at Wheathampstead, just north of modern-day St Albans in Hertfordshire. And there he gave, delivered a crushing blow to Catavalonus. The British king sued for peace. And the Roman conquest was on. Hold the front page. Julius Caesar had other plans. First up, he didn't want to winter in Britain. And let's face it, who can blame him? Secondly, he was wary of another storm wrecking his fleet. Uh, and we, again, who could blame him? And he also had uh, intelligence that a revolt was brewing again in Gaul. And finally... Ever the politician, he didn't want to be away from the power politics in Rome, stuck on the island, on the edge of the world. So, having gained tributes and slaves from Cassivalaunus, and a promise that he wouldn't attack the Trivavantes, uh, the tri uh, the honest, 
he retraced his steps, boarded his ships, and once again returned to the continent. Caesar returned to Rome in triumph uh, with his British captives and proclaimed that to all intents and purposes, Britannia was Roman. Vote for me. Although that's not quite how the Britons saw it, nor was it actually the political or military reality on the ground in Britain. Maybe he needed to return. Third time lucky. But less than three years later, a revolt did indeed break out in Gaul, which took up all his time. And then civil war erupted in Rome itself. Five years after defeating Cassivellaunus, Caesar marched his legions out of Gaul and across the Rubicon into the Roman Republic to seize power. And the rest, as they say, is history. Britain had seen off the mighty Julius Caesar and the Roman Empire. This sceptile remained proudly independent, but the Romans hadn't forgotten about the island on the edge of the world, and they would return. <laughs>